Well, thank you so much, Esha, for joining me today. Super excited to to discuss your journey, you know, as a as a journalist and, and now as a as an author and, and a writer with your new book. Before we kind of get into the book, what's sort of been your journey like before the book? Maybe just walk us through those decades of, of being a journalist and what you learned, what you covered. Just just walk us through that path and journey you've had in your life so far. Thank you so much, also, for having me on the podcast. I've followed your work for many years, and you've built a great community around this topic as well. So I so appreciate that because this is still perhaps not mainstream yet. (laughs) So we're all trying to work on getting these stories out there. Um, So I have been a journalist for, gosh, you know, nearing on 15 years now, and basically started my journey right after grad school, or actually under undergrad. I went to Georgetown for undergrad. And um, one of my mentors there said, you know, have you heard of something called a Rotary Fellowship? And I was like, what is Rotary? What do they do? I had no idea. And then I learned about this incredible world of like, you know, just people who come together every week and support their communities and do humanitarian work. And so I was introduced to the Rotary community. They gave me a fellowship to do my master's in London at the London School of Economics. But at the same time, they were also working with UNICEF and WHO and the Gates Foundation at the time on this program called the Polio Eradication Mm -hmm. Initiative. Um, which you may have seen in the news. I mean, this was a disease that I didn't know anything about. It's not really something for our generation. Right. Um, I'm a, you know, as I, as my friends and I call it, we're geriatric millennials. And so we're not really part of that generation that had to deal with polio. But I had the opportunity to go travel and see firsthand what these health workers were doing on the ground. Um, I spent a lot of time in India, which is where I was originally born. And I just went door to door with health workers, seeing how they were inoculating mm. children. And it was so eye-opening. And I think for me, as someone who was already interested in journalism, but had thought about maybe focusing on political journalism, having been in Washington, D.C. for Georgetown, it shifted my lens. I was like, these are stories that need to be told and aren't being told. Um, They're so much more important than I feel like, you know, the political circus that goes on every day in D.C. So I started freelancing stories and I would pitch them to The Atlantic, to The Guardian, and they gratefully picked them up and they allowed me to do that reporting. And that really gave me some confidence that like, hey, we can write about things that are more solutions driven and Mm -hmm. that media space. And simultaneously, I was kindly introduced to David Bornstein, who was building out the Solutions Journalism Network in those days, and then ultimately went on to build this column at the New York Times called The Fixes with his colleague, Tina Rosenberg. And the two of them were just kind of really kind mentors and helped me on my journalistic journey. And so I would just freelance stories that were around social entrepreneurship. And the language Hmm. then was more like microfinance and development social entrepreneurship. And I saw this space evolve over the last 10 years. But what I noticed was that all of this was connected. I mean, I started by doing reporting on global health, but a lot of the environmental challenges that we face today are so intrinsically connected to the environments that we live in, right? Mm -hmm. And if you are always just focused on getting your bread and butter for the day, can you even think about some of the environmental challenges? Totally, totally. So that was my background in journalism. And I think being an immigrant to the US also, um, it just gives you a great sense of empathy. You just understand people's struggles more. And so I decided to devote my career to, you know, telling the stories of people that I felt like were trying to create change in the world in some way positively. Would you want to touch on any of like the stories that really stuck with you throughout the years? Yeah, absolutely. Um, I mean, this was in India back in, I think, like now 2013 or 14. But I remember me 
meeting the gentleman who runs a company called Jaipur Rugs. Mm -hmm. It's a huge brand now, but 10 years ago, they were still trying to get their footing in India and then internationally as well. But he was just this incredibly humble gentleman. And he said, you know, do you want to come with me and visit the weavers who Hmm. weave these rugs? And I had a few free days. I was visiting Jaipur in Rajasthan in India. And we went out to the desert and we met these incredible women who were sitting alongside sometimes their children, sometimes other family members, you know, right outside their huts and doing this weaving work. And he built this incredible network. I mean, how? I don't know, because he's not someone who had incredible, you know, he didn't have lots of resources. It's not like he was VC backed or anything like that. But he just had this determination to do something with his life that would support other human beings. And he faced setbacks and he was told by, you know, family members, by people in the community, like what you're doing is not worthwhile. Why are you spending time with these people that are perhaps considered lesser than you? But meeting individuals like him was really, I think, something that made me think about like every one of us has an opportunity in our careers to do something, you know, whether Mm -hmm. you're selling rugs or whether you're writing stories or, you know, you're a doctor. So that was one um, company that really kind of touched me early on. Another one was a doctor in um, St. Stephen's Hospital in Delhi, which is one of the older hospitals in the city. And it's, you know, servicing a lot of members of the community who can't really afford healthcare. Sure. And uh, Dr. Matthew is just like a force of nature. This man looks like Gandhi basically reincarnated and he's just like this short little petite man who's got so much energy and um, he built the first polio ward in India Um, Mm. and now I think the only polio ward in India that's been there for a long time and again like defying odds the hospital wasn't entirely on board with this concept and he said you know what no I mean there's so many children that are facing these kind of physical challenges now that they've had the disease how do we help them and he has you know figured out a variety of ways to help them surgically and to give them these low-cost surgeries that are also affordable for the hospital to do. So, you know, I ended up writing a story about him for, for the Atlantic. It was like a visual story. And then later, you know, he got inundated with with press and Bill Gates ended up going and visiting St. Stephen's. And during the pandemic, he did a video that went viral and it really helped people kind of understand what was happening with the pandemic and COVID. But when you meet people like that, that are just so selfless with their careers, I don't know, I find that really humbling. And it's, it's just a reminder, like, you know, don't take yourselves too seriously kind of thing. You mentioned that um, you thought you might go into sort of you know, political journalism, which is, you know, a whole nother animal, right? And yeah. my degree was international, like political science, international relations, and, and digital media. And so that taught me how much I like hated politics. And like, I was like, got very frustrated with not not the slow slowness of sort of things, but it was always there was always another hurdle, you had to jump over to solve something, it, it felt like, right. And, you know, business seemed like a, a really interesting way to kind of merge some of the ideologies, you know, from politics on like, hey, how do you use government to solve things? You know, how do you do this in a proper way? It's like business has that ability to to kind of do those same things, but kind of rapidly and at, at scale, right? And that was like really interested me. And that's sort of how I got into it. Was there was there something that kind of was a catalyst for you after Georgetown or something where you were like, you know, politics is not really it. Was there was there was it a story or was it a friend? Was it you know, a person, was it a company that you saw that maybe was a catalyzing moment uh, for you to really kind of go down this path of writing about business rather than, you know, government policy? 
Yeah, absolutely. So one of my jobs when I was a senior at Georgetown was to work at CNN. And um, I also worked at CBS Evening News. And they were wonderful internships and opportunities. But like, I was spending my day running around the Capitol building, like trying to get news bites from Donald Rumsfeld or Condoleezza mm-hmm. Rice or these kind of folks. It was the second Bush administration in those days. And I just felt like I'm like, this is not what I want to do <laughs> with the next five, 10 years of my life. Um, but I agree with you. I completely felt frustrated. I was like, wow, this is really slow change. Also, the media business is also a hard business to kind of mm-hmm. climb up the ranks. Um, you have to hang around for a long time, especially in those days. I mean, now I think with the internet just having exploded, you can do reporting from everywhere. But this was really early internet. Um, yep. So for me, it was, I heard about an organization called Kiva in San Francisco. Mm-hmm. And yeah. I read a you know column by Nick Kristoff that was highlighting Kiva. And then I reached out to the Kiva folks and I was like, tell me more about this. And I'd heard about microfinance and Dr. Eunice's work. And it really kind of just resonated. It made sense. And I ended up actually volunteering with Kiva and helping them build something called Campus Kiva, like taking the concept to universities. Hmm. And that's when I started to understand the role of business and this general like frustration with the nonprofit sector. I feel like there were a lot of books that were written at the time. And there was a lot of discussion at the time about just, you know, is it enough to give money? Is it okay to just constantly be donating money to whether you're looking at Africa or India right. or whatever, and how that doesn't necessarily solve problems. So yeah, the social entrepreneurship movement was just kind of beginning to percolate. I went to a, a little conference or like a summit that was for young people called Starting Block. And I think it was one of their very early conferences. It was in Boston. And I just remember meeting all these people that were in that kind of mindset of how do we use business to create change? People were creating like low cost health tools, innovations in energy, you know, really doing fascinating things. And I was like, this is mm-hmm. this I can this I can resonate with. And I agree with you because I think every sector has a role to play, policy, mm-hmm. civic, business. But business does seem like in a way where you can kind of take ownership and run with it. And you don't have to get as many people on board or do that kind of political dance. Um, so yeah, that that's what fascinated me. It's also something that, I mean, I think about today all the time is like, somebody asked me recently, um, you know, can business do it alone? I don't think so. I don't think business can do it alone because if you're working in a society that's like fundamentally broken or, you know, um, has a lot of violence and political upheaval, it's very hard for a business to operate. Right. Um, but in societies where things are relatively stable, yeah. yeah, I think business has a huge role to play. I want to kind of segue into the book a little bit because the book is is about something that I, that I love to do, right? It's sort of is sort of looking at brands that are are taking this approach, but doing it really right, you know. And I think there's a lot of social impact, social social entrepreneurship. There's these big terms that could mean really broad things to a lot of different people. And you know, there's obviously now as the industry is sort of growing, there's a lot of more focus on sustainability. We see you know a lot of brands slapping labels on certain things, right? Saying certain things, and greenwashing is obviously a big term. And and that's again, all these things are are kind of they're all just relative. It could be based on you know, your thought process. Somebody could really think they're doing something great, but they're they're actually you know might not be doing something as as good as they can be. How did you choose to to write the book? I guess what was the light bulb moment for that? It's 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 something that I've always wanted to do, and I know we've chatted about it before. But talk us through that process of of sitting down, saying you wanted to do it, 
Um, but it's another thing to actually sit down and actually do it because it takes a lot of time, a lot of energy. I guess, what was the catalyst for it? And, and tell us what the book is about. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, writing a book is definitely a long-term <laughs> project. So set aside some time. Um, but, you know, I'd been doing all this reporting and I'd had the opportunity to travel to some really fascinating and interesting places along the way. And I just felt like there wasn't a book that captured these stories through a journalistic lens. Mm -hmm. There'd been a lot of books that had come out that were written by founders or by people in academia or think mm -hmm. tanks. Yep. And I was like, no, we just need something that's like literally showing that this movement is growing globally, kind of going through and showcasing real stories of companies that are really trying to tackle these problems and make it super easy for folks to read and access. So like you can pick up the book and you can read one chapter, you can read one case study. You don't need to sit down and read the whole thing. Yes, there is obviously a thesis around this concept of like regenerative business, but it's really also meant to be like just trying to get folks who are perhaps slightly interested in the topic to be a little bit more interested in the topic because I feel like we all sort of live in our little echo chambers and in our bubbles. Like we Definitely. live and breathe sustainability, but I, you know, I don't think the average consumer has thought about it as deeply. It came together around 2018. Um, you know, I said, now is the time. I think there's enough stories. There was interest from the publisher to do it. And I felt like we just had to create a structure that was, again, about things that we touch every day in our lives. So that's why you see food, fashion, travel, health, these are mm -hmm. things that everybody's interacting with in some capacity or another. And also, I was already beginning to see like that the greenwashing was getting out of control. And mm -hmm. so I felt like we needed to have a conversation about like, what are the companies that are really doing this work? And how do they look at this space? Yeah. So every entrepreneur I was talking to was like, don't use the word sustainability. Like, I hate yeah. that word. <laughs> I really don't want to use that word. And they were, you know, migrating yeah. to instead transparency or traceability and these kind of terms and that everybody kind of had their own take on it. Yep. But the general consensus was like, what are we sustaining? Like, this is clearly a broken system. And so when you start thinking about the lexicon and the words in that way, it made me just kind of really pause and reflect. And so regenerative was a word that was kind of coming about in 2018, but it was far more yeah. around just agriculture. So the publishers and I kind of had a brainstorm and we thought about what is it really? And it is about res restorative and regenerative work in the sense that you're trying to restore an imbalance that's been created. You're trying to regenerate, whether it's communities or it's you know the ecosystem and uh, whether it's wildlife, biodiversity, but also like social communities. And regenerative means to like breathe life into something. It means to like give it some fervor, you know, give it some love kind of thing. So that made a lot of sense. And so I felt like I had the framework of the board the book. And we also used the UN Sustainable Development Goals as kind of like a background of these were clearly topics that, you know, the development community and the broader kind of sustainability community were focusing on. So that helped also with the framework of the book. But I had, by then I had spent like almost a decade, you know, kind of surveying the landscape. Yeah. So I knew who the players were out there that were trying to, to kind of break the mold. How did you choose who to cover? Because there are there are like like you said, I mean, over the, the years, a decade, there's a lot of impressive founders and companies now. You know, more than ever, there there's some really, really innovative and impressive founders and brands being built all around the world. So how would you how'd you narrow it down to, you know, sort of four or five, six? Yeah, I mean, it was just a matter of like, we had limited pages, right? <laughs> you know, publishers have budgets and they're like, we can't go beyond X amount. Um, but we really tried to think about, okay, like, for example, the first chapter on soil, there mm. is 
there are a couple food companies, but there's also a fashion company. Mm. So, you know, it was also really thinking about specific things within companies that we wanted to highlight. It wasn't just like, let's just tell the whole story of one company, but it was perhaps a particular part of their supply chain or a particular um, approach that they take to hiring. You know, it was that aspect also that I took into consideration. Um, so for example, in the soil chapter, you have a brand like Veja, which is doing stuff in the Amazon in terms of harvesting rubber, which also has to do with actually, you know, soil regeneration mm -hmm. and preserving those ecosystems. Um, but it's perhaps not what you think of immediately when you think of soil, you think more of traditional agriculture. So there was also that that went into it. I think they can definitely be a part two to this book if there's an appetite for it down the road. <laughs> yeah. I mean, there's so many companies for sure. But really, I, I made a kind of like a master list and then I curated them based on the chapters. Mm, that's interesting. You mentioned your sort of immigrant story. You know, I don't know if you want to touch on that a little bit, but just a little bit of, of how you went through through that journey, how you how you saw the world previously. You know, I don't know. I'm not sure how young, young you were, but I guess walk us through that path of, you know, relationship with the sort of Western world and, and then sort of getting introduced to it and then being embedded in it and then, you know, living in it and how, you know, we can do better and export you know, better ideas, right? And, and better businesses, because we have a tendency here to like not listen and learn from others. But there's so much that we can learn. And then the good thing about, you know, what America could do is like, man, once we take an idea, like we have a great way of like scaling it and just exploding it in, in positive ways, negative ways as well, for sure. But there's there's stuff that we can learn around the world, like just from the amazing people, like you said, you met in India, like, how do you catalyze people that don't have, you know, even in America, there's so much of a society that don't have, that doesn't have VC backed dollars that don't have the opportunity to do this, but people around the world figure it out and they build something great. I guess just talk about, you know, your, your immigrant story, if, if you'd like. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so I came to the States when I was a child. I mean, I was yeah. six years old. It was my parents' decision to leave India and to move to the U.S. for, wow. you know, quote unquote, a better life. And it was sort of a <laughs> Were they teachers or... No, they, my dad's been in business his entire life. He's from nice. different companies. And, you know, these were like, we were middle-class folks in Delhi and we just packed up our bags and you wow. know, within a month we're moving to another country. Do you remember anything from that? Like oh, anything yeah. From, yeah. Yeah. Six, yeah, you start yeah. to, you start to remember. Yeah. It's probably a long yeah. flight. You probably remember the flight. Yeah. yeah I remember we, we, and we, stopped. we had a few stops along the way. We visited people that we knew in Berlin and in London. And then we ended up in D.C. actually because my dad had a contact there. And we spent nice. a month on, on the West Coast for just trying to figure out our bearings. Like, what yeah. are we going to do here? Kind of thing. Um, I don't know if my dad had fully thought it through. But, you know, I really commend them for that courage that they had. And then we moved to Southern California, to Los Angeles. And my dad really built a business out of nothing. And for that, I mean, I have a lot of respect for him. And so to see that as a child and to see the struggle, and it was financially very hard in the early years, that really gives you an understanding, I think, of people from different walks of life. You know, I mean, you're living in communities where you see people of all colors, all different socioeconomic strata. Like I was living in the San Fernando Valley in California, which is just this, you know, mega kind of valley. It's just yeah. nothing but buildings after buildings after buildings. And you have so many different cultures here. And yeah, I mean, growing up, this was the 90s, right? And so this was pre- digital. We're like the yeah, last generation yeah, yeah, that had right. that. And so I always to... say we were the last generation before the internet and the first generation 
of the internet. We lived in a very odd world of, we saw pre-internet and the first forming of the internet. Like we were those last 10 years before the internet and then the first 10 years, it was like, it was, it was wild how it changed like so, so drastically. Totally. And I, and I think that that's a big part of, you know, perhaps the challenges also today, but in the nineties, like I just remember you couldn't pick up the phone and call overseas. It was expensive. Yeah. Right? Yeah. And so it, it was really like we were submerged in this world. We were on our own. Yes, of course, mm. we had family back in India that was supportive and everything. But you just didn't have that kind of day-to-day connection like you do. You can WhatsApp someone now. You can FaceTime someone now. And so I really did kind of go through a period when I was young where it was just like adjusting to a new culture and navigating the pop culture, the references, all of that. But people were very open and very accepting. And it was a really positive experience in childhood. And that's what I love about America. I mean, I just sometimes when we get into all these like divisive conversations as a country now i'm like guys like we've done this in the past in a really (laughs) positive constructive way like we can do this but you're always straddling two worlds like you just know that there's another world out there so a lot of my you know friends in school had never really seen what life is like you know in a country where perhaps there are a lot of people struggling for their everyday needs um i did get like some of the you know odd questions of like did you go to school on an elephant when you were in india or like you know things like that that were just like slightly (laughs) ignorance but yeah you you kind of dust it off we're all kids like we don't know um but it was always this understanding that there is another world out there and i think for me that's why i was always very driven to travel driven to having like a global career and having a global mindset and just really always open i always tell people like you know try to travel try to get outside your bubble i mean i i know people who haven't left from 200 miles from the coastline, you know, their entire yeah. life here in California. Yeah. They've just really lived here. Um, just go to another state. Just go, you know, totally. 500 totally. miles north, like whatever it takes. Um, but it really gives you far more empathy. I mean, that's the word that I would say defines my life in that way, because you're just really, I, I feel very at ease when I go to other cultures and just happy to like kind of ease into what they're doing and understand what they're doing. And that's what a journalist does. And that's what I did for many years. I was just traveling and getting to hear people's stories and translating it for them. After the book now, like after you wrote it and sort of you know, you got it done. You sort of got that little weight off your shoulder. It's something, I mean, it's an amazing accomplishment in life. So congratulations on that. But what did this process teach you um, about just the industry itself? Like you've seen it kind of mature over the last decade into something real where I think, you know, not only in the US, but, you know, globally, like social entrepreneurship and social enterprises, regenerative business models are really being thought of, I think, a lot at, at a lot of higher levels and a lot of places where, where it really matters. Um, a lot of funders talk about it, which is to me the biggest part of all this is you have investors talking about it, which is uh, which is great. But out of this, what are you what are your hopes for the for the future? Where do you see the industry going? Maybe touch on maybe some negative things that you could see down the line, but also obviously the positives, you know, coming over the next, you know, five years for the industry. Yeah, I mean, there's so much to touch upon there. So I think first off, there's a lot of buzzwords being thrown around. There's a lot now going around carbon neutral, climate positive, climate negative, net zero. I just think like it's really confusing. It was confusing for me when people pitch me these things. I know it's confusing for the consumer. So I think uh, businesses really need to think about how they communicate this. And then also genuinely do the work before they start doing the marketing. I feel like there is a really, Mm. you know, there's a lot of marketing going around and I don't know if enough of that is translating into action. Um, There's a lot of also focus on carbon offsets, which is 
slightly problematic. Um, you know, you need to kind of look at your own emissions, your own supply chain, and really focus on that and see where you can reduce those emissions and make improvements before turning to carbon offsets. So I hope that the industry really does take sustainability seriously in the coming years and, you know, doesn't just kind of use it as a marketing tool. In terms of businesses themselves, you know, many of the companies that are featured, they're medium-sized businesses. They've been around for like seven to 10 years. They've shown that their model works. They're not corporates. And one of the big themes that came away from that was some of them have taken on investors. Some of them have chosen not to. So they've just funded it through cash flow or perhaps a loan or a grant is that they basically are realizing that not everybody needs to be an international brand or a national brand. Yeah, it's a great point. It's a question of scale. Like I just saw this question come up so many times when I started reporting on this space. Um, It was always like, how are you going to scale this idea? How are you going to grow this? You know, and I think there's a limit to the scale. I mean, you can stop. It's okay to stop. You know, if you've reached a, a status where you can support the employees that you have and have a healthy workplace and all of that, I think that should be sufficient. But unfortunately, I don't know if it's driven by media or by just, you know, our society in general, where we're constantly lusting for like big numbers and these big headlines. We kind of celebrate, you know, the the folks that are raising crazy amounts of money um, and reaching, you know, crazy scale. Totally. I'm like the opposite. I'm always like, wait, you raised $50 million. Like it should be easy then to like get this done. (laughs) I like the people who just do it with like 10 grand and then build something awesome. Like you said, I mean, if you can get to like, you know, five, 10 million in revenue, you have employees with with benefits, full-time jobs, they love what they do. Your brand works for the community, for the world, for the environment. Like we need millions of those companies, not, you know, five or six brands that control an entire, monopolize an entire industry and sector. We know what the problems are with that. And so to me, it's the idea that needs to scale, not necessarily the individual businesses, because like you said, I mean, to me, it's like finding your scale. Scale does not mean the same thing to one business as it means to another. You know, if you're a consumer app, obviously scale means different than a local regenerative farm or just a small business in a community or a smaller city that is providing some type of of support. That's why I love what you've written about and what you've done is like focusing on the small businesses that are doing this day-to-day hard work like that, that is my focus. And that's why I appreciate what you've done. Absolutely. I mean, these businesses, I, I've also just appreciated how hard it is to build a business. I mean, that would be the other thing mm, that I would say is yeah. that I feel like we live in super critical times and, you know, this cancel culture. And so if you're not perfectly sustainable, if you're not doing <laughs> yeah. every single thing, you're going to get Yeah, we'll out. find one flaw and then you, we won't buy from you or something. Uh, yeah, it's crazy. But fundamentally, at the end of the day, it's a business. And so these people have to make choices that, you know, they have to ensure that their company is profitable also, always. So it's a yep. balancing act between purpose and business. And I think that that's also really important. It also moves the needle at the end of the day. So like, for example, if we look at agriculture, you know, there's so much talk around organic and now regenerative organic, which is all fascinating and great. Mm -hmm. But at the end of the day, US farmland, like only less than 2% is organic, right? Why? And you talk to the farmers and they'll say, well, the economics of it doesn't make sense for me. So I think that part, we need to always remember that it has to make sense economically as well. Values are great. Mission is great. But that money factor always comes in and it's important. Um, So yeah, I completely agree with you. I think replication is is what we need Mm. more of. Replication is not a bad thing um, in this scenario. And also for me, like I spent a lot of time 
actually visiting and talking with farmers. And I just feel like this so is around the world. And they're just such an incredible, resilient group of people. Mm-hmm. And they're just not getting their fair share. And so that's why the book looks at a lot of agricultural supply chains. There's chocolate, there's coffee, there's cotton, yeah. there's all of that, where there's these individuals that are really trying to kind of rejig these old school supply chains and make them more equitable. You know, it as we were talking, I was thinking, putting your uh, Georgetown and your political hat back on. I think the point you just made about, you know, 2% of land is organic in the US. To me, this goes back to where government can really thrive. And it's like, how do we use subsidies as a government to really invigorate this sector, even going 2% to 10% is a big deal. You know, that creates tons and tons of jobs. It creates a tons and tons of healthier food for local communities. It creates this it creates also the motivation for, like you said, farmers to make it economically viable to make this switch. I think that is such a huge part of all this. And maybe maybe your next book is like going talk to like political people of like, hey, how do we get how could we subsidize things more effectively that actually regenerate the land rather than just subsidies that extract from the land. That's great. Listen, for the last hundred years, that's been the right thing to do because it has taken us to this point, but we can't keep going that same way. And so I think that could be an interesting way where we have policy and business merge in an interesting way that could take us to the next, through the next 50 years, right? And set us up for centuries to come. Yeah, absolutely. And part of that food story is also the SNAP program. I mean, I know the food bill is up now again for reconsideration and we're trying to make the SNAP program also more accessible to folks. So um, I was just talking to the folks at Feeding America this week and they're doing incredible work on, you know, just getting food to communities that need it in America. But like there was no option for folks that don't have access to fresh and healthy produce to get it online, even though we live in a digital world because the SNAP program was not designed to be digital. So there's all these kind of policy things that are really preventing, I feel like, you know, progress and improvement. And in terms of subsidizing farmers, well, I learned in the process of researching this book that like less than 1% of the corn that we grow, which is one of the biggest crops we grow in America, is actually used for food consumption. I mean, the rest of it is all used for other, you know, industry purposes. But they subsidize the monocrop too. That land should not be just corn is the issue. Yeah. Sorry. I'm going to go with my soapbox on that one. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, it's wild, you know, the corn and soy thing. It's just, it's wild. And so I live in California where we grow a lot of produce, which is great, but there's huge spots of America where we're not growing food. Um, And yet we have so much land. And when I was doing the reporting on the soil chapter, you know, I read the work of David Montgomery and then talked to him, who's this incredible like writer and scientist from uh, Washington state. And he talks about like when soil basically starts to disappear in terms of the topsoil, civilizations start to crumble. So he talks about his research of like Rome falling because they had issues with their soil and their agriculture. Um, So these are really unsexy topics that are not going to make headlines, (laughs) but like we need to deal with them. (laughs) Well, soil is like gold. That's how you have to frame it, right? Because if you have rich soil, you have a rich country. If you have healthy soil, you have a healthy healthy country because it comes, yeah, healthy people, but healthy economy as well like it really is all in the soil i know it's like it's like simple and it's also like very complex like when you talk to people people like him but it's so true right we don't we don't think too much about it but the shit is sexy to me and i think other people (laughs) other people are starting to i think appreciate it more and 
are kind of earning for knowledge in certain spaces, right? I think people want to learn how stuff's made, where it's made, you know, all these different things that, that we like. Like I think more and more people are starting to discover that it is kind of interesting. It is good to know this stuff. And I hope even the companies also like, I hope, you know, folks at companies read this book also, because sometimes like if you look at denim with cotton, they just spent 20 cents extra, 50 cents extra Mm -hmm. per unit. You could be using better quality materials, paying the people more. It's not a huge difference for companies, Mm -hmm. Yeah, but there has to be that will from the top to make these changes happen, I think. Thank you so much for taking the time. This has been a great conversation. I knew it would be. Congrats on the book. I'll put the, sh- the link in the in the show notes below uh, so everybody can, can get it. But it's called Working to Restore, Harnessing the Power of Regenerative Business to Heal the World. Regenerative Business is, is going to be huge. And so I think it was a great title, great subtitle at least. Best of luck to, to you in the future. Best of luck to the book. And uh, anytime you want to come back on and, and talk about any topics or anything like that, let's do it. Sounds good. I think we're on the same wavelength here. <laughs> 